Hey guys, thank you for joining us today on Talking Scripture. Hopefully you've heard that we are now on podcasting apps. You can find Talking Scripture on Apple, Stitcher, and Spotify. Can you take a minute and just rate and subscribe to our podcast? That will go a long way in helping people find us. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce, and I'm six feet away from Mike so that we are social distancing just like we're supposed to and hope all of you are staying safe and that your loved ones are safe and that if anyone's sick, we pray for their relief as soon as possible. Absolutely. Well, Bryce, we're going to finish King Benjamin's address. And in this chapter or these chapters, it's a continuation of a lot of the things that he's been discussing about the nothingness of men and the greatness of God. We're around the temple. King Benjamin's going to install his son to be the next king. And so with that in mind, a little bit of background, why don't you go ahead and and get us started with Mosiah 4? So we'll pick up right where we left off. We used a little bit of Mosiah chapter 4 last time, but the structure here is King Benjamin wants them to remember something. And it's the same thing that's going to flow throughout the whole Book of Mormon. If we remember this, it seems to be almost a cure-all for so many of the challenges that we face. If you'll remember this, then all these blessings will flow. And we mentioned it last time, but now let's actually dive into it because it's this week's scripture. After the very first address, after he talks about that he was their king and that he served them, and that if we were render all our thanks, we'd be unprofitable servants. And then chapter 3, where the angel comes and tells all about Christ and the greatness of the Messiah and his goodness and how he loves us and that he's coming down to an earth to save us. The effect of that was exactly what King Benjamin was wanting. Chapter 4, verse 2, they viewed themselves in their own carnal state, even less than the dust of the earth. And that is the goal is to see who we really are and that we need Jesus, and that we never forget that lesson. Verse 2, they cry out and say, Oh, have mercy and apply the atoning blood of Christ that we may be forgiven of our sins. They saw themselves in their carnal state. I remind you, we talked about the natural man. They saw that they have these natural tendencies that lead them away from God, and they just came to see that they needed Christ. So King Benjamin opens up his mouth again, but this time he's very specific. He says, if, 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 and then a big then. So starting in verse 5, if, if the knowledge of the goodness of God at this time has awakened you to a sense of your nothingness and your worthless and fallen state. Now we need to be careful with the word worthless. It's not that we're valueless. It's just that when we esteem ourselves compared to God, it's a very, very small comparison. We have a tendency to take God out of the picture and look around and say, well, I'm better than you, and I'm better than you. And when you look at us compared to God, that's what he's trying to say. If you have seen the goodness of God, verse five, 6 is another if. If you have come to the knowledge of the goodness of God and his matchless power and his wisdom and his patience and his long suffering towards the children of man, and if you understand the value of the atonement, if you'll remember that, if you'll remember your nothingness, And his greatness, look at verse 7, here's the then, that is the person who receives salvation. There's a beautiful little formula for salvation in three verses. Remember the goodness of God and your own nothingness and your need for the atonement and your need for Heavenly Father's help. And verse 7, that man will be saved. And there's no other salvation. This is it. And so, again, verse 9, believe in God. You've got to believe in the greatness of God. You've got to believe that God sees what you don't see. 
But verse 10, you must see that you need to repent. And now he begins the, okay, ready? Here is the culmination of all of King Benjamin's message in verse 11. As you have come to the knowledge of the glory of God, as you have tasted and known the goodness of his love and received the remission of your sins, here's what you do for the rest of your life. I would that ye should remember and always retain in remembrance the greatness of God and your own nothingness and his goodness and longsuffering towards you. If you will do that, if you will always remember the greatness of God and how much you need him, and here comes number two, humble yourselves even into the depth of humility, calling upon the Lord daily, and here comes number three, stand fast in the faith of which is to come. So just hold this, hold this line. Remember the greatness of God. Remember your own nothingness. Stand faith in that commitment. Verse 12 begins a list of all of the blessings that are going to flow into your life. That if you have children and you raise your children to always remember the greatness of God and their own nothingness, and to humble themselves and call upon God and stand in that faith, then starting 12 through 16 is an absolute list of blessings. Probably the most important one is you'll rejoice, you'll be filled with the love of God, and you'll retain a remission of your sins. You'll grow in the knowledge of God, you'll grow in the knowledge of that it was true, and it will change how you deal with each other. Starting in verse 13, if you remember the greatness of God, you will be kinder and gentler and a better citizen of planet Earth. You'll be a better husband and father. You'll be a better wife. You'll be better citizens. If you remember the greatness of God and your own nothingness, then you won't fight and quarrel, and you won't let your children fight and quarrel, and you'll walk in the, all these blessings King Benjamin mentions, which is everything that I want for my children and everything we want for each other. If you'll just do these things, then you will have salvation. And then he leads into, perhaps you might look around and think that someone doesn't deserve your help. Well, they're just a beggar. And then he goes into this beautiful speech about, but wait a minute, aren't we all beggars? Aren't we all beggars? So that, Mike, is chap- that chapter four is kind of that here is the lesson you need to learn. Here's the point. And may I suggest that this is the point of the sacrament, isn't it? This isn't, isn't this why one of the main reasons we take the sacrament is to remind ourselves of the greatness of God and our own nothingness and our need for him and to make covenants with him. So this is now going to flow right into chapter five where we make a covenant and get a name which is what he wanted to give them in the first place. Here's what I want you to remember so that you can make a covenant and receive a name. You know, Bryce, it's almost like the sacrament is a repackaging of this experience that they had, where every year at the fall festival, the king would remind them the greatness of God, their own nothingness. They would portray the liberation from slavery. They would talk about how they were freed from uh, being slaves and that God delivered them. We just had Easter, and in my family, we always do a, like a Passover dinner, and we kind of go through the whole thing with the story of the Exodus. And then this this year, my my kids and I, we got to watch uh, Prince of Egypt, 
And it's such a good way to retell the story of how they delivered them. And so I think this was their sacrament. This was their communal meal. They're honoring God. They recognize who he is. And I like how you made that connection with the sacrament, because if we take the sacrament, don't we realize we're beggars and we need to forgive? And I love how our hymns, a lot of times, we'll talk about that as we sing the hymn, which to me is part of the sacrament. It kind of reminds us. The greatness of God. I think there's a connection between greatness of God, nothingness of man, covenants, and the name that we will be called. Yeah. And then that ties sacrament in, that ties our covenants in, who we are as a people. Because once you put a name upon us, and that's what President Nelson is doing, is our name is not Mormon. Our name is not Latter-day Saint. When you make this covenant, when you remember the greatness of God and the nothingness of man, and you make this covenant, then you get his name. Just like my children come into this world and become Dunfords, we make a covenant and we gain a whole new name, which is where we're going in chapter 5. But we just kind of wanted to establish that chapter 4 is this, here's the goal, remember the greatness of God. We, We are beggars. Every one of us are beggars. No matter what, how successful you are in life, we need to remember that we are beggars and we depend upon the goodness of God, even for the breath that we breathe and the food that we eat, which is why we fast and we pray and we pray before we eat. Look at all the things that are coming together. We pray before we eat to thank God for his goodness and our, to recognize our dependence upon him. All of this just comes together in this concept of remember the greatness of God and the nothingness of man, make a covenant with him, and then you become his people. Yeah. So in chapter 5, he's going to reemphasize this idea of taking upon yourself the name. He says this in chapter 5, verse 8, Under this head ye are made free, and there is no other head whereby ye can be made free, and there is no other name given whereby salvation cometh. Therefore I would that you would take upon you the name of Christ, all you that have entered into the covenant with God, that you should be obedient unto the end of your lives. And he also says it in chapter 4, verse 8, where he says, This is the means whereby salvation cometh, and there is none other salvation save this which hath been spoken of. Neither are there any conditions whereby man can be saved, except it be the conditions which I have told you. And so chapter 4 is the conditions. Chapter 5 talks about the name and how they take upon themselves the name of Christ in the presence of their king. Um, Chapter 5, 9 through 15 talks about the blessings and cursings associated with the covenant. And so in verse 9 it says, Whosoever doeth this shall be found at the right hand of God, for he shall know the name by which he is called, for he shall be called by the name of Christ. And now it shall come to pass that whosoever shall not take upon him the name of Christ must be called by some other name. Therefore he findeth himself on the left hand of God. Verse 12, I would that you should retain the name written always in your hearts, that you are not found on the left hand of God. Now, I take responsibility for my interpretation here, but I think what King Benjamin is saying is that the name they're going to take upon themselves is Yahweh Mashiach. That's going to be, um, we say the name Jehovah probably was pronounced Yahweh, and Christ would be to them Mashiach. Christ is a Greek word, and so I don't think that the Nephites were speaking Greek. But here's Joseph Smith, and he comes across this word on the plate text, and he's talking to a 19th century group of Protestants. He's not going to write Yahweh Mashiach. It would seem very foreign, and so it's the equivalent. It's Christ. Christ is the name we have to take upon ourselves. The Book of Mormon 
is the Israelite religion before the Jewish apostasy of 640. In the ancient Near East, taking upon yourself the name of God is taking his essence. The name of God kind of changes over time, depending on what time period you are in the Old Testament. But prior to 640, prior to what's called the Deuteronomistic Reforms, the name of the God was considered his essence. But after the Reforms, because they stopped believing that God had a like a body and that his presence could be felt among them, it changes. And in Deuteronomy, we read that the temple is where the name of the Lord shall dwell. The name represented something other than his essence. It's a fine distinction, but it's important to note that the Book of Mormon is representing first Israelite temple theology. So to them, if you take upon yourself the name of Yahweh or take upon yourself the name of Christ, it's as if his essence is with you which I find fascinating because Price made the connection with sacrament. What do we say in the prayers? They would be willing to take upon them the name of Christ. That his? That his spirit will be with them. I mean, that's and always it. remember him. That's the essence. That, that distinction is in the Book of Mormon, and it's in First Temple Israelite religion, and that distinction does matter. And so the name is a big deal. I want to read this about the name briefly. This is Bruce Porter and Stephen Ricks. And this, this is an interesting note that they make. They say, in the cultures of the ancient Near East, existence was thought to be dependent upon an identifying word, that word being the name. The name of someone or something was perceived not as a mere abstraction, but as the real entity. The audible and spoken image of the person was taken to be his spiritual essence. According to Philo of Alexandria, the name is like a shadow which accompanies the body. Similarly, Origen viewed the name as the designation of the individual's essence. What King Benjamin is doing here then essentially is he's considering the name itself to have power. And it's evident to me that he's doing this as he caps the covenant with the name. There is no other name by which salvation may be had, Mosiah 3.17 and Mosiah 5.8. So taking upon the name, the name of Christ, is not nearly so passive as a modern designation of being a Christian or even being a Latter-day Saint. The name to King Benjamin included all of the covenants subsumed under that name and identified the person who bore it as one of the covenant. In the intercessory prayer, Jesus says something that I find very interesting. I think there's more than just, hey, I believe in Jesus happening here. I think the name is something associated with the ritual of this day of atonement. And so in John 17, I really do believe that the author of John understands first temple religion. Uh, The author of John, in my opinion, is trying to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of first Israelite temple religion. Jesus is the king. And receiving the name of Yahweh is, in essence, putting a stamp, an identifier on that individual as a saved individual. So notice the interesting language in John 17. So this is the intercessory prayer in the Gospels. Jesus is praying to his Father in verse 5. O now, Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. So to me, Jesus is cementing his relationship to his father. They had this close connection in the pre-earth world. And then verse 6, I have manifested thy name unto the men that thou gavest me. Verse 8, 
I've given them the words which thou gavest me. I think this is a very specific thing. Verse 12, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. This is name theology, in my opinion. And then go to the end. Verse 26, and I have declared unto them, speaking of his apostles, Jesus says, I have declared unto them thy name and will declare it, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them and I in them. So to me, I see the essence again in verse 26. John understands first Israelite temple religion, that the name is the essence of the deity. And this is right here in the middle of King Benjamin's address because the Book of Mormon is the Israelite religion before the Jewish apostasy of 640. And so the name is important. And this is related to sacred places and the Day of Atonement in the setting of the first temple. I just wanted to throw that out there. And not only that, we we got to talk about why the name is significant, because the covenant. So let me take everyone back to Mosiah chapter 5, verse 7, and let's be absolutely clear here. Let's shout from the rooftops that Mormons believe that Jesus is our Father. Now, we need to clarify that so that people don't misunderstand. After King Benjamin says what he says in chapter 4, they get it, and they are moved And so the Spirit comes, and verse 3, we ourselves also through the infinite goodness of God and the manifestations of the Spirit have great views of that which is to come. They get it. And then King Benjamin steps up and says, hey, do you want to make a covenant? Let's make a covenant. Because you get your relationship to God, let's make a covenant with him. Now verse 7. And every Latter-day Saint needs to highlight Mosiah 5-7. We need to memorize it. We need to shout it from the rooftops. Because of the covenant which ye have made, ye shall be called the children of Christ, his sons and his daughters. For behold, this day he has spiritually begotten you, for ye say that your hearts are changed through faith in his name. Therefore, ye are born of him and have become his sons and his daughters. There it is. Now, let's be clear. Let's talk about our three fathers. Long ago in the premortal life, Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother provided a spirit for our intelligence to house, and they became parents to help us into this new existence. So birth is kind of like combining something created and something that already exists, and you gain some helpers along the way, and that is the people who created what was created. So in premortal life, Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother created this spirit body for my intelligence to come into, and they became my parents. My father, literal father. God is my father. Heavenly Mother is my mother. I want to add this, Bryce, that our our dear Christian friends don't have this belief. It's very important that we draw that distinction that it's a Latter-day Saint belief that we are children of heavenly parents. The distinction they make is that they believe that you can become a child of God through receiving Jesus. They're missing that first element of the Father and the Mother in the heavens, which was lost, in my opinion, to the apostasy. Yeah, and you can't change that. You can't stop being their child. You can't undo that. You will be their child forever. 
So then we come into our next existence. You take something already existing. That's my spirit body. And then in my case, Jetty and Tracy Dunford created a physical body for that spirit to house, and they then become another set of parents. They become, Jed becomes my father. I became a Dunford because I was born to him and my mother, and people associate me with my whole family and with my father and my mother because when I was born to them on earth, I inherited their name. So now I have two sets of parents. I have a heavenly set of parents who gave birth to my spirit, my spirit body, and then I have an earthly set of parents who gave birth to my physical body. But this physical body is not my end goal. I'd like to change it into a spirit entity, an exalted physical body. What Paul would say, a spiritual body, a which spiritual, means a resurrected, immortal body. As distinguished from the spirit body I had in the premortal life. Right. This is a spiritual body. So I want my physical body to change into a spiritual, resurrected, ultimately body. And that mean, that requires a new set of parents. And so I make a covenant with Christ, and he gives birth to this spiritual body of mine. And that's what he's talking about here. And he gives birth to my resurrection. He gives birth to my forgiveness. He gives birth to my do-over. He gives birth to my new man, the new man I'm trying to become. I, I take this physical body with all of its weaknesses and my natural man, and I, I, I'm born again. And so all of these concepts we find in the scriptures about being born again and putting off the natural man is the process by which Jesus gives birth to this new person I want to become. And he literally becomes the father of that new person. And in doing so, I get a new name, just like I inherited the name Dunford when I came in and was born to Jetty and Tracy Dunford. I get a new name. I am Jesus. I am Yahweh. I am Jehovah. I am little Christ. And I get that name placed upon me, and he becomes my father. Now, if I could extend the symbolism, I gain a new mother, too, because Jesus is married, and the two of them are giving birth to my new spiritual being. And the, the mother is his bride, which is the church. So Jesus becomes my father, and in a spiritual sense, in a symbolic sense, the church becomes my nursing mother. And those two, the covenants that the church provides, the keys of the priesthood, the teachings of the presidents of the church, the church becomes my mother, and Jesus becomes my father who provided the atonement and his sacrifice, and those two give birth to this new man, this, this changed person. Um, I'm, gonna, I'm going to remember the greatness of God person. I'm going to serve other people. And then I am saved, and I become a child of God. I always will be a child of Heavenly Father, but I become a child of Jesus. We want to make Jesus our Father. That's the key. And that identity, that identity is so critical that we remember who we are. I am a son of God the Father. I am a son of a Dunford, and I am a son of Jesus. And so I live to bring honor to the Dunford name. I live to bring honor to Christ, whose name I carry around. I become a little Christ, 
and everyone watches me and says, oh, that's Jesus's boy. And because of that covenant, I am known by that name. And we really, really need to honor that name. And I love what President Nelson is doing with the church, is he is reestablishing the name, not just the name of the church, but the name by which we should all be identified. I belong to Jesus. My kids will laugh at me because I have a label maker and I label everything in my house. I just love labeling because then things don't get lost. You know, everyone knows whose charger is theirs and everyone knows when you find an adapter, you know what it belongs to because dad put a label on it. And I love the idea that when I made a covenant with Christ, he put a label on me. And so that everyone knows that belongs to Jesus. This is his. And if you mess with Bryce, you mess with Christ. He's mine, says Jesus. He's labeled me by putting that name on me. I like that we put names on that, which we don't want to lose. In the scriptures, there's so many name changes. And Bryce, I think this is happening. Like, for example, Genesis 32, where Jacob's name is changed to Israel, Yisrael. He who shall prevail with El or with God. James and John become, I love how Jesus calls them, the sons of thunder. thunder. (laughs) Simon to Peter. So the name change is also like indicative of a change in relationship. So there's that going on too. You got to change a relationship there. I really, don't you think that this name changing and the retaining or remission of sins and recognizing the greatness of God are really what he's trying to drive home here? Yeah. Yeah, remember the greatness of God, remember your own nothingness, make a covenant with him, become Christ's son or daughter, and then live that covenant. And I, I, there's, a, there's just an absolute beautiful promise at the end of chapter 5. We can kind of come back to that idea of calling an election sure and everything that we've been talking about. Nephi mentioned that, that if you die on the path, thus saith the Father, you shall have eternal life. Well, if you're true to the name that you've been given— if you'll always remember the greatness of God and your own nothingness, if you'll keep your covenants, if you'll remember that you're a beggar, if you'll serve and take care of his children, if you'll be true to the name, true to the name means acting like him. Then, verse 15 of chapter 5, therefore I would that you should always be steadfast and immovable always abounding in good works, that Christ, the Lord God omnipotent, may seal you his, that you may be brought to heaven and that you may have everlasting salvation and eternal life through the wisdom and power and justice and mercy of him who created all things in heaven and in earth, who is God above all. If you are true to that name, if you keep the covenant, if you really are his, and remember the greatness of God, he seals you his. And where he is, you will go. And what he is, you will become. This is the essence of the gospel. And I think the key element here, and we've said it so many times, and maybe we need to say it a thousand more times until it hits registers in our head, we've got to retain in remembrance the greatness of God and our own nothingness which is why we recovenant every week with the sacrament. Remember the greatness of God. Come back to the covenant. Be born of Christ. Let him be your father. Take upon you his name so that he will seal you as his. 
So those are the main points. I want to go off on some dirt roads just for a minute on a couple things. Um, you know, for example, Mosiah 5.8 and Mosiah 4.8 that says there's no other head, no other name whereby we're, we're going to be made free. I do believe eventually all of mankind will be reconciled to this truth. There's no way around it. We have to repent. But I really like how Joseph says, you know, while one people is judging another, the Lord has his arms of mercy extended to all men. Well, that's a really good quote by Joseph. You probably have it, like, right there. You want me to read it? Yeah, go, go ahead, yeah just go ahead and read that. Joseph Smith said, But while one portion of the human race is judging and condemning the other without mercy, the great parent of the universe looks upon the whole human family with a fatherly care and paternal regard. He views them as his offspring. And without any of those contracted feelings that influence the children of men, he causes the, his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. He holds the reins of judgment in his hands. He is a wise lawgiver and will judge all men, not according to the narrow contracted notions of man. I love that phrase. It's a great phrase. He will not judge men according to the narrow contracted notions of men, but according to the deeds done in the body, whether they be good or evil. And whether these deeds were done in England, America, Spain, Turkey, or India, he will judge them not according to what they have not, but according to what they have. Those who lived without law will be judged without law. Those who have a law will be judged by that law. We need not doubt the, the wisdom and intelligence of the great Jehovah. He will award judgment and mercy to all nations according to A, 1, the means of obtaining intelligence, 2, the laws by which they are governed, 3, the facilities afforded them of obtaining correct information, 4, his inscrutable designs in relation to the human family, and when the designs of God shall be made manifest and the curtain of futurity be withdrawn, we shall, all of us, eventually have to confess that the judge of all the earth has done right. I really love that quote. One of the reasons why I want to talk about this, Bryce, is because I believe there's a lot of messaging in the world out there that says things like, hey, if, as long as I'm a good person, I don't really need to believe in Jesus, or I can, you know, have my own truth and you can have your own truth, or I don't even need to believe in God. And I think King Benjamin is drawing a sharp line here and saying, there really is no other way. And that's a really hard message for people today. And so I like that quote by Joseph, because what he's saying is there is no other way, but the Lord is going to judge you according to the light and knowledge you have. And I also, by extension, believe that whatever light and knowledge that we follow, it will bring us to the true source of light. I really do. And I want to just illustrate this with an example from church history. So it's 1828. That's the time period. The church hasn't been restored. It's not restored till April 6, 1830, as far as an organization is concerned. Joseph's translating the Book of Mormon. And as he's translating it, and many of you listeners know the story of how he gives the the manuscript to Martin to show to his family, and the manuscript is lost, the lost 116 pages. And in section 10 of the Doctrine and Covenants, the Lord tells Joseph one of his reasons for bringing forth the Book of Mormon. So I'm going to read section 10 of the Doctrine and Covenants, verse 52. And here it is. And now, behold, according to their faith and their prayers, will I bring this part of my gospel to the knowledge of my people. Behold, I do not bring it to destroy that which they have received, but to build it up. So verse 52 of Doctrine and Covenant section 10, the Lord says, I don't bring the Book of Mormon to destroy that which they've received, 
one way for me to read this, I like to read that as the Bible or the tenets of Protestantism or even Catholicism. Like the Protestants and the Catholics have a lot of truth. And God says, I don't want to destroy the truth they have. Nor criticize or shame them. There's no sense in shaming someone simply because they don't have something that someone else has. Yeah, they're doing what they can. My intention was never to shame or to do anything negative. I just want to build and lift and add to. Yeah, I want to build it up. And for this cause have I said, if this generation harden not their hearts, I will establish my church among them. So I like to read that as, okay, I'm going to establish my church, the church of Jesus Christ. But then notice what the Lord says in verse 54. Now, I do not say this to destroy my church, but I say this to build up my church. There's lots of ways to read that. But for me, I read this. This is my interpretation of verse 54. As all the good people of the earth at this time are his church. They're doing what they have according to his light and knowledge. They're part of the ecclesia, the church, or the body, or the assembly of believers in Jesus. Verse 55. Therefore, whosoever belongeth to my church need not fear. But wait, the church of Jesus Christ hasn't been restored. I think the Lord's saying in verse 55 that the church is bigger than we think, that it's the ecclesia, it's the group of people that believe in Christ and are trying to find light and knowledge. Whosoever belongeth to my church need not fear, for such shall inherit the kingdom of God. But it is they who do not fear me, neither keep my commandments, and then he goes on, but build up churches unto themselves. And so I think one of the distinctions the Lord's trying to say here is, follow the light you have, you're going to make it. So I like to balance Mosiah 4, 8, and 5, 8 with those those ideas, what Joseph Smith is saying and what the Lord's saying in section 10. Sometimes when I've taught classes, I've had a student who've said something like, well, my grandma's not a member of the church. Is there any hope for her? And I would say, absolutely. I think... (laughs) Does she love Jesus? Yeah. And even if she's never heard of Jesus, does she follow light and truth? Are you trying to follow the light and truth that you have? And I really do also believe this, that even people that are on paths of darkness, I think a lot of sin is the result of seeking something good in the wrong way. And I think when our... And this is one of my definitions of religion. It's like this realigning, real religion, to realign our views If we could have a clear view of Jesus and the light, we're going to follow that light. I don't know a lot of people that are like, I really want to hurt myself. I really want to follow darkness. Even those on dark paths, I think deep down want something good. They're just doing it wrong. What do you think about that, Bryce? Does that work for you? It does. And let's be clear, though. Eventually, as long as you're following the light, eventually that light will lead you to Jesus Christ. There is no other way to continually go down the path of light without ultimately it leading you to Christ. So you may not know about Jesus right now. And he says, look, that's fine. Just follow the light that you have. But let's be clear. In the end, there is only one path. You can choose to get off of it, but that light will lead you to Christ. He is the only way to get to true happiness. And I I love there's this little story in the Chronicles of Narnia A girl named Jill has come into Narnia, and she knows nothing about Aslan the lion that represents Christ, but she's very thirsty, and she hears water running, and she runs to find the source of the water, and it's a beautiful little stream, and sitting in front of the stream is a massive lion, and Jill has no idea who it is, but you, the reader, know who it is. It's Aslan the lion that represents Jesus. 
And this little conversation represents so many of us who are trying to come to truth, and then we come to Jesus. Are you not thirsty, said the lion? Oh, I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do? The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. As Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come? Isn't that what we often ask Christ? Please don't change me. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, men and women, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh, dear, said Jill, coming a step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. And then I just love this statement from Aslan the lion. There is no other stream. It was the hardest thing she ever had to do, but she went forth to the stream, knelt down, and began scooping up water in her hand. It was the coldest, most refreshing water she had ever tasted. You didn't need to drink much of it, for it quenched your thirst at once. And that's the story. One way or another, we all have to find Jesus. He'll be content with even the feeblest steps we make along the way, as long as we're following light. But in the end, let's be clear, we all need to find Jesus. There is no other way. There is no other stream. Realize His greatness. Make a covenant. Let Him become your Father. Gain His name. Live up to that name. And you'll be saved. Thanks for listening. We will start with Mosiah 7 next time. Which is funny because we're actually going way back in time to the story of Zenith and Noah and Noah blindness and Abinadi. Have a wonderful week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.